This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I know I say it every week, but I have an extra special guest. His name is Doug Bronstein. You may recognize the name from his years at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he not only served as chief financial officer, but he was also head of investment banking, global M&A, a member of J.P. Morgan's executive committee. Doug is currently founder and managing partner of Hudson Executive Capital. Uh, they are, for lack of a better word, an investment firm, private equity firm, a little bit of an activist firm. They manage about $1.6 billion, uh, and they have recently become quite the active SPAC underwriter, their first SPAC uh, did really well. It's up about 28% or so. Uh, their second SPAC launched last year, and their third SPAC is coming out shortly. Uh, Doug has just a unique background in the uh, world of finance and M&A, um, an incredible network. He, he's from first Boston to Merrill Lynch to more recently J.P. Morgan Chase. Just just an incredible network of of people and contacts and company executives and, and finance people gives him just a unique perch to look out at the world of what companies are attractively priced, where can mid-sized companies uh, find a way to obtain capital to turn around uh, their fortunes, and how does the SPAC structure work in, in those uh, areas. Really just a master class on the intersection of, of corporate finance and company management and how to produce value for shareholders. Uh, I found this to be absolutely fascinating, wonky, uh, and informative, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my interview with Hudson Executive Capital's managing partner, Doug Bronstein. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, I have an extra special guest. His name is Doug Bronstein, and he is the founder and managing partner of Hudson Executive Capital, a private investment firm that engages in private equity, uh, public offerings, activist investing, uh, managing about $1.6 billion dollars. Previously, Doug was the chief financial officer for J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Doug Bronstein, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Good to be with you. So, in addition to being CFO of a major public bank, you were you were head of J.P. Morgan's American Investment Banking Group. You were head of the Global M&A Group. You were a member of the Executive Committee. Tell us a little bit about where you began your career and how you rose to those positions at J.P. Morgan. Yeah, so Barry, in some sense, it was a little bit uh, circumstance. I, I was actually, uh, I went to law school, and I had planned uh, actually to be uh, a, a, a law school professor. That was my objective. And um, I read this remarkable article in the New York Times Sunday Business uh, Sunday Magazine section on uh, lawyers becoming investment bankers, and it it sparked my interest. And uh, that year was the first year uh, First Boston came to uh, campus to recruit directly. And I dropped my resume into a box, because that's what you did back in the 1980s. 
and um, and I interviewed uh, with a bunch of bankers in the M&A group at First Boston, thought it sounded incredibly exciting, and so that's where I went. I, I spent uh, close to eight years at First Boston working originally for Bruce Wasserstein and Joe Perella in the M&A group and, uh, and just had an extraordinary uh, start to my career. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than cutting your teeth with, with those two gentlemen. How did you end up at J.P. Morgan? Well, I took a, uh, my boss at the time at uh, First Boston, who's running the M&A group, brought a bunch of us, uh, about six senior bankers, uh, to uh, Merrill Lynch to help build out their M&A practice. And I was there for, you know, four uh, very good years. Um, but I got a call, actually, from, uh, from uh, the, uh, the late Jimmy Lee, and uh, he was at Chase, and they wanted to build out their investment banking businesses. And he and Bill Harrison convinced me that um, I could come and uh, make a difference. So I joined that organization uh, in, uh, in early 1997 to run, at the then time, their, their healthcare investment banking practice and uh, to co-head their M&A group. And... I think the year before I joined, um, the Chase M&A Group's revenues were about $35 million. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, think, I, th- I think actually Joe's uh, Pizza Shop and M&A Group probably ranked higher in the league tables. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we... We, I had a wonderful, we'll talk a little bit about it, I had a wonderful uh, close to 20-year career at J.P. Morgan, but, you know, when when I left the role of uh, head of M&A, uh, the business was doing about a billion six um, about seven or eight years later. So it was a remarkable uh, run in building out that business uh, with the firm. Yeah, to say, to say the least. And, you know, it's funny, coming from a legal background, you, you went to Harvard Law and then you spent time doing banking. That's not the usual career path to CFO at a publicly traded company. Usually it's some combination of accounting and MBA and, and that side of, of the company. How did you end up at as J.P. Morgan Chase's CFO? Yeah, well, um, my first... To be fair, my first exposure to uh, Jamie was uh, I was I was helping Bill Harrison as advisor to J.P. Morgan in the merger discussions with uh, Bank One, and uh, actually I can I can remember distinctly uh, a quite. Uh, a quite forceful conversation around the exchange ratio uh, uh, at a conference room table with what I knew would be my future boss. And, you know, I think we, uh, we got to know each other quite well during that process. Um, I was fortunate enough to be, uh, in addition to the advisor to the company, I had the opportunity to run a number of the uh, important businesses in the investment banking business. So at the time, I was uh, running both M&A and the coverage units. Um, I later took on responsibility for running uh, a number of the capital markets businesses. And I think during that uh, time frame, 
the businesses I was working with did very well. You know, uh, I think we had the opportunity to demonstrate a fairly high degree of rigor as a business matter. And I got to develop a, 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 an even stronger relationship with Jamie and quite a number of the members of the operating committee. And so um, I, I think when um, I was approached to do uh, the CFO job, uh, as you might expect, I spent a lot of time talking actually to Mike Cavanaugh, who was my predecessor in the role, speaking to literally all of the operating committee members um, before deciding that uh, it would be a great opportunity for me and hopefully uh, the right decision for the bank. Huh. And I, I assume it turned out to be your CFO, not only of a giant company, but of a publicly traded one, what is that like? Uh, uh, being public gets a bad rep these days. Uh, what was it like being J.P. Morgan Chase's chief financial officer? Yeah, you know, it. I mean, to be fair, Barry, I, I think it was, in aggregate, a remarkable privilege uh, to be the CFO of J.P. Morgan. It, it is, a, I think, one of the world's great companies, and obviously, I got to work directly for what I believe is one of the world's great uh, business leaders in Jamie. Um, you know, there it was. It the the remarkable part about it is the what I believed was this in this awesome sense of personal responsibility because the company had you know two hundred and fifty thousand employees, and while we had you know bankers and deal doers, you know we had literally thousands of people in teller jobs and back office jobs and the security teams that, you know, greeted you on your way into the office. And so you just, you, you came in every day uh, with this feeling of responsibility to make sure that the company was both safe and secure and a good place for them to work. We had millions of consumer customers, you know, millions of small business customers, and obviously we were, you know, banked to many of the largest businesses in the world. And then, of course, you have a $2 trillion balance sheet. And at the then time, six independent lines of business. So it was, you know, it was a privilege to, to serve in that role. Um, you know, you worked every day to make sure that we were maintaining uh, a fortress balance sheet. Obviously, my responsibility in communicating with the external investors was to make sure that what we said was accurate, transparent, that we were you know, clear and consistent with that reporting both to the public and obviously to our regulators. Um, and the last thing that was really fascinating about the job was, you know, I took on that role right um, on the heels of the implementation of Dodd-Frank. So, you know, at the, the early days uh, of, uh, you know, a post-global financial crisis, if you will. You mentioned the Fortress balance sheet. J.P. Morgan Chase probably came through the financial crisis better than any other bank, uh, certainly better than any major money center bank. You weren't the CFO during the crisis, but I assume, because of your role in M&A, um, you were witness to what 
you know, that quick Bear Stearns deal. Did you participate sure. in that? And and it, what on earth was that like? Yeah, so it's, it's, it was it, it was actually I did get to participate. It was an extraordinary experience at the time. I was I was in my role of running banking and M and A, and so I ended up doing the what was a very short lead advisory assignment for our work at the company. So we knew, you know, midweek that you know Bear Stearns was having uh, what ended up being you know a devastating liquidity crisis, and. Um, we originally, as you may recall, were called by the Fed to yeah. provide Bear Stearns a loan, and then literally over the course of that, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we I, I helped to organize and uh, lead teams around diligence, and then obviously helped uh, Jamie and the senior management in the negotiation of the actual transaction. So... You know the 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 process itself, given the time constraints and the risks involved, was you know one of the most fascinating ones I've been involved with. I I can imagine. And then I assume a similar shotgun romance a year later with Washington Mutual. I assume that was sort of similar, although given the overlap between regulators, I would imagine. You're going into that with a little more confidence that there were no surprises than perhaps uh, you saw at Bear Stearns. Yeah, I mean Bear Stearns. Obviously, we had you know we had this weekend. They had there were businesses we were quite familiar with, but but we knew in part that if we didn't act over the course of the weekend and Bear Stearns filed for bankruptcy, which they were preparing to do, right. Um, that there would be this cascading effect that could potentially impact many others. Sure. So J.P. It Morgan was a, was a big a, counterparty, right? There yeah, was it was less. For you guys? Yeah, there was, but that was less at issue actually for us. Um, uh, again, because of the fortress balance sheet and the 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 vast amount of liquidity we had, you know, it had others incurred problems we you know we we thought we would be fine but it wasn't necessarily a good thing for both uh uh the economy and the country and so at the time there was there was a real sense that you know if we could do something that was good for our shareholders and also good for the for the country that we would do that Washington Mutual was was a different set of circumstances and a different process and different regulators, as you said, Barry. Right. And as it as it had turned out, we had taken a hard look at Washington Mutual previously, and it was also, to be fair, a simpler business um, and a less complicated balance sheet. And so that process was, you know, less time-constrained, though obviously important, and it was really run in a very different way. Interestingly, at the time, if I'm recollecting correctly, the FDIC, which ran that process, they actually required you to bid uh, over a fax machine, which, you know, <laughs> even even at the time was was unusual. Um, so and so we actually had to put our bid, bid letter in over the fax machine. Um, 
And, you know, both of those transactions, obviously, the opportunity set arose because, you know, we were a fortress balance sheet and we were able to take on uh, those businesses. And I think in hindsight, both have created, you know, a lot of value for the J.P. Morgan shareholders. Yeah, quite, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Hudson and, and what they do. What what motivated you after working in a series of giant banks to launch your own firm? Uh, uh, thanks for asking, Barry. It actually, um, it was a, a function of some of the most uh, extraordinary people I had met over a 30-year career on Wall Street had been uh, successful entrepreneurs. In fact, uh, my wife had been a very successful entrepreneur. And, and I thought that it would be an exciting and invigorating opportunity to, to launch out at, you know, 55 and uh, start uh, my own business. And, um, and I wanted to do something uh, different and exciting and energizing, and I I came up with the idea of building an investment firm around the notion that I could tap into this remarkable network of uh, current and former chief executive officers and other senior executives that I had built over that 30-year career and try and offer that wisdom and expertise and mentoring and judgment uh, to small and mid-cap companies where we could make an investment and, and try and help those companies to improve their performance. So that was really, it was, it was the excitement of doing something entrepreneurial and, um, and, and really sort of leveraging those capabilities and relationships I had built over, you know, three decades. So, so when I think of Hudson Capital, I kind of think of it as one part private equity, one part underwriter, one part activist investor. A- am I oversimplifying that? How would you describe it? You know, I, I think the, the way to think about it is I, I think we try to take a private equity-like approach to public market investing. And, and, and what I mean by that is we we invest in companies where we think we can add value by helping them from an operational standpoint we can add value by helping them uh allocate capital efficiently and that doesn't by the way mean share repurchases or dividend that means for small companies you know how do i put a dollar of investment to work in my business to optimize my return on investment for my shareholders. We, we look at how to help the company reposition themselves in the capital markets, attract better long-term investors, get better coverage from research analysts, tell their story succinctly and clearly. And then perhaps the most important thing we end up doing is helping the company position themselves strategically for a lot of these small companies, you know, they participate in businesses where scale ultimately can be a real competitive advantage. 
and and oftentimes our investments and the companies we invest in end up being acquired by much larger strategic uh, uh, partners. So that's the that's the way our philosophical approach. It is very active, um, but much of what we do, almost all of what we do, is uh, typically behind the scenes, um, you know, out of public view. Uh, consultative with both the CEO and the management team and the board. Um, and we find if we can do that, it usually gets to the the place we want to get to faster um, and more efficiently, and it ends up working out much better for the shareholders. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm going to guess with your background and your experience doing M&A for all these you know, August companies that have fantastic reputations, you develop a sense for what makes for a good acquisition, what deals work out well, where is the value hidden that perhaps the market um, is missing. But the thing that makes it even more interesting these days is then you then take that background and say you use the SPAC structure as the shell to make acquisitions, hopefully, uh, that bring unlock some of that value for the marketplace. Why SPACs? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Barry. And, you know, I began Hudson uh, a little under six years ago, and we were simply, you know, investing principally in public companies, companies that were already public where we could go and acquire their, their shares. And and I was, to be fair, over the last several years, I was somewhat skeptical of SPACs. The history for me with SPACs was, you know, one that typically involved very troubled companies. And, and um, some very dear banker friends of mine worked very hard to convince me that this market was changing and that the skills that I just described that we use in Hudson – to help position public companies would be directly applicable to these private companies and the SPAC structure um, in going uh, public. So um, we launched our first uh, SPAC in uh, June of 2020, so right on the heels of uh, you know the the turnaround in the markets following the pandemics. Uh, you know, initial impact. And um, we've been very fortunate. Uh, we we announced a merger for that first SPAC uh, early in uh, January uh, with a company uh, called Talkspace, which we're really excited about. Right. That, that deal is now up more than 28% since uh, the SPAC was launched. Talk us through the experience what is the process like of looking to to merge a company into a SPAC compared to the traditional M&A type of transaction? Yeah, it's it's actually remarkably similar in many ways to a traditional M&A uh, transaction. So the 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 important part of uh, ultimately finding a successful uh, transaction is identifying businesses, in our view, that have 
long-term sustainable competitive advantage, right? Because you're going to be merging with a company that ultimately for us, we think we want to, we want to look out and be successful shareholders, not just at the transaction, but two years, five years, 10 years out, right? So it's important as part of an M&A process to identify companies that you think are going to create uh, long-term value. The second piece of it is you actually have to find a great management team, right, to help uh, execute that vision. Um, and then the third piece is, is this a business that you can be an effective partner with, right? And do you, do you share a common vision? Do you share a common mission? Do you think about how to build that business and create value for shareholders consistent with the management team? And, you know, in Talkspace, we, you know, we found each of those three uh, opportunity sets were, were fantastically filled by the company, both uh, its, its management, uh, the core business, which I'll, I'll happily talk a little bit about, and, um, you know, and our shared vision of uh, what the opportunity set is for the shareholders over time. So, so you mentioned um, the first SPAC, HEI-1, was filed in June 2020. The second version, uh, HEI-2, uh, came out later in the year, and you just filed for HEI-3 for a $500 yes. million SPAC. Is there something to the rhythm of this uh, to keep a full pipeline of future SPACs teed up, or is this just you know, a land rush these days and everybody is uh, <laughs> looking to do what they can do? Yeah, you know, I, I, it is certainly there's a lot of activity. I can't speak to the logic behind others. For us, you know, one of the things that we have found is that our business model has created, uh, uh, really, even for me, I thought it would be a good level of uh, transaction flow. It's been an extraordinary level of transaction flow. And we, we source the businesses from really a multitude of sources. We have this network of uh, my founding CEO partners, uh, almost 35 uh, executives that are out uh, looking for opportunities for us to to merge with in the SPAC. We have a full research team uh, that's doing bottoms-up work. Um, that's part of the Hudson Executive uh, Investment Team. We have what turns out to have been, you know, the benefit of 30 years on Wall Street is, you know, we've got wonderful relationships uh, with the M&A banker community on Wall Street. So we are getting um, more than our fair share of opportunities that we look at. And then my partner and I, Doug Bergeron, we, we've got, you know, longstanding historical relationships on both the East and the West Coast into the venture community and the private equity community. So for us, raising capital is really reflective of the opportunity set we see in front of us. And we've been very purposeful in sizing those two SPACs 
quite differently to reflect the different size of the opportunities so that we've got, you know, the appropriate level of sponsor capital uh, to really help effectuate, you know, smaller and larger uh, transactions. So for us, you know, we think this is, this is a, a new and I think long lasting corporate finance tool that private companies are going to look to utilize. It won't be perfect for all companies, but it will be really a, an excellent capital market solution for many. And we think we're going to be, you know, we're, we're built to be successful in this asset class. So, so I have two more questions on SPACs. The first is, I think it was last month, I saw a column on TechCrunch that asked, could giant SPACs be next? Raises the question, how, how big can SPACs get? Are, are, are we going to see a billion or a multi-billion dollar SPAC coming down the pipe? Yeah, so Barry, there have already been several that are a billion or multi-billion that have have been launched, and there is no question that there's the investor appetite for that. Uh, you know, to me, it's it, it's you want to have the right tool in your toolkit for the right opportunity set. And what what's really exciting for us is, you know, SPACs in that 250 to 750 range, plus the ability to raise capital through a pipe, gives you an enormous flexibility to really optimize the number of potential uh, uh, merger partners out there. You know, the larger you get, the shorter the list comes of uh, eligible transactions. And so we'd rather, you know, to us, it's less about the headline you grab, and it's more about finding really good businesses that generate a lot of value for our investors and for the shareholders. And, and that leads to the related question, at, at what size does an IPO make much more sense than a SPAC, and and you sort of hinted at that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's honestly it's less about size, and it's so let me let me just step back for a second, and you know from our perspective, what I've I've come to firmly believe is there are some very significant competitive advantages of a SPAC over an IPO, right? It's a faster process, so speed mm-hmm. can sometimes be important. It's actually a more certain process in terms of pricing, because you don't actually end up announcing the transaction, the actual merger, until you've raised the pipe, and the pipe confirms the price, right? So you've pre-sold at that given price. Um, And so you know in a relatively short period of time, not only you're going to effectuate the, the, the go public, but you know the price. Structurally, the SPAC gives you, I think, a greater degree of flexibility to raise both more primary and secondary capital in most instances. And then the last piece is the actual disclosures of a proxy, a merger proxy, versus an IPO filing means that you can actually provide your investors with projections. 
and it allows, particularly for growth companies, it allows them to tell a much more fulsome story to the investor, and and the corresponding opportunity is the investor gets a lot more information when making that investment decision. So those characteristics are offset by a SPAC can be marginally higher in terms of its cost of capital than an IPO. And you're actually, a SPAC means you're choosing a partner. And in an IPO, you don't have to do that. So, you know, each company that goes through this evaluation has to decide, do the benefits outweigh the cost? For Hudson, what we articulate to our SPAC partners, and we did this with Talkspace quite effectively, is our partnership, because of this network of executives and our experiences, actually accelerates growth and adds value to the company, and therefore, over time, you know, the the shareholders should be better off with that partnership. So we we think that's, you know, a, and I go back to, you know, the your question about is a SPAC like a merger? At the end of the day, many, many mergers are successful or fail on the chemistry and interaction of uh, the two companies. So this partnership concept actually matters as much, if not more oftentimes, than the underlying economics of a deal. So, Doug, I was reading a quote of yours that I I really am intrigued by. You had said, quote, we like to apply a private equity approach to investing in public markets, unquote. Explain what you mean by applying private equity to public markets. Yeah, Barry, it's it is a combination at the front end of rigorous due diligence. So before we make an investment, um, it oftentimes it takes us, you know, four to six months to complete our work. So we'll we'll be following a company for a long period of time, and we we try to dig in as deep as possible uh, to that business. Now we're aided by the fact that. You know, we have this network of current and former chief executive officers that have, you know, lifetimes of experience and domain knowledge in the industries in which we invest. And so we often rely on them and their networks to help us analyze uh, the businesses that we invest in. We, you know, we only make three to five investments per year, we're very concentrated. And so we have to make sure, you know, when you make very few bets, you want to make sure that uh, those bets are are good ones. Um, The other piece is, after we've made the investment, how involved we are with the companies. So um, we will be involved assisting the management providing advice, mentoring, as it relates to their operational execution, as it relates to the ha- the, how they position themselves in the capital markets, as it relates to how they allocate uh, the shareholders' capital to optimize value and returns, and ultimately, how they position the company strategically. And so we will often 
get our we we will often go on boards of the companies that we invest in. We'll often make recommendations for uh, board members we think bring lots of value to the company. We will, in many instances, actually sign NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and actually work side-by-side with the management for periods of time. We've presented to all of the company boards that we invest in um, to give the the board members a perspective on how shareholders view their companies. So we're, you know, we're kind of roll up your sleeves uh, kind of investors. I will tell you, it's it's not. We think it not only creates a lot of value, but it's actually personally quite rewarding uh, to work with some of these companies and you know see them doing a better job delivering for their customers, for their employees, and ultimately for their shareholders. Hmm. Very, very interesting. You you have mentioned several times your your limited partners and your, the investors. Tell us a little bit about these folks. It sounds like you have not only a, a network of ready sources of capital, but what I only could describe as smart money. Yeah, it's it's. I, I would actually say you're you're. Um, if you met these folks, uh, smart wouldn't do justice to the <laughs> extraordinary capabilities of these individuals. So I had, you know, the 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 remarkable opportunity having worked, uh, you know, running banking at J.P. Morgan is I, I got to work with many of the world's great companies, um, and I developed relationships over those, uh, you know, 30 years with uh, a lot of uh, chief executive officers, CFOs who became CEOs, heads of corporate development. And um, when I started Hudson, uh, the first $250 million of capital that I raised was principally from that group of executives. And... Um, what I asked of them was not only for their capital, but I asked them to help uh, to identify opportunities to invest, to help uh, provide mentorship and guidance to the companies that we uh, invested in, to make recommendations for board members or for management team members, and really to be actively involved. And so we use that group. They've been with me for uh, six years as an investor. Uh, we use that group for all aspects of identifying opportunities and diligence and then execution. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, our our new and growing SPAC business. They are all um, actively involved in that as well. So it's it's an extraordinary group of professionals and, you know, literally many of them have, have helped build and run and create some of uh, the world's best companies. So, so let's talk about some of your other non-SPAC investments. Uh, at one point in time, you owned a 19% stake in Cardtronics. Do, where, where is that uh, investment? Are you, are you still uh, active with them? Uh, and that's a pretty substantial chunk. Tell us a little bit about that deal. It is, and and maybe I'll actually step back. So we we, we and we still do own uh, that stake, 
Um, we acquired that stake a, a little over three years ago. Um, and the logic behind it, Cartronics is it's one of these you know, interesting small companies that many people have never heard of but have a remarkable market position. They are the leading provider of ATM machines, independent ATM operators um, in the world. They don't make the machines. They actually run and manage a network of almost 40,000 uh, ATMs in uh, the United States and and many outside the United States. And what's unique about them is that they're in seven of the 10 largest retail locations. So if you go into a CVS or a Walgreens or a Target or a Speedway and you see an ATM in there, that ATM is owned and operated by Cartronics. And the company at the time we invested was struggling. They had just made uh, two very large acquisitions, levered their balance sheet, operating performance had gone south. They had lost their largest customer. Um, and you know, we invested in the company uh, based on, again, months of diligence using our network of chief executive officers and our relationships, and obviously my own personal background um, uh, in the banking industry, and uh, worked with the then new CEO to help reposition the company and change its uh, strategic focus. And over the last several years, uh, that CEO and his management team have done an extraordinary job um, in repositioning the company. In the in the pandemic, uh, the stock uh, took a very significant uh, hit, uh, despite the fact that the company operated exceptionally well uh, through the pandemic. And as a result of what I thought was a ongoing long-term opportunity, but a short-term disruption. Um, I partnered with uh, Apollo Global Management, a private equity firm, and actually made an offer, which was uh, ultimately accepted by the board to take the company private. And Um, and when when you had made that offer, it attracted the attention, I believe, of one of the big manufacturers of ATMs, NCR, who got involved. How did their role um, come about, and how did that resolve? Well, as you know, Barry, I mean, in, in, uh, uh, the Cartronics is headquartered uh, in the U.K., um, you know, public company boards have a fiduciary responsibility when selling a company to optimize value. Right. And and um, after our transaction was announced, um, the board received a series of inbound inquiries from a whole host of companies. And at the end of uh, a process that they ran, uh, the board made the determination that the NCR offer, which was uh, $39 versus our $35 uh, offer, was superior, and they therefore recommended that to the shareholders. And that transaction now, the vote and uh, the transaction remains pending. 
Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic and the opportunities the market crash might have created last year. Uh, Normally, when you get a 34% crash like we saw in 2020, the value investors get an opportunity to go out and pick their favorite targets on the cheap. But it seemed like this was over. If you blinked, you missed it. How was last year as uh, an environment to find either discounted or distressed assets that looked attractive? Yeah, no, it, it, it actually is remarkably different in tone nature, and I would argue over time um, the impact of the pandemic on the way companies do business, I think is will will be far long last, far more long lasting, um, and different than the global financial crisis. So, the 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 speed at which the market recovered, I think, created a very small brief opportunity for folks brave enough to step in. In some sense, it's, it, it, it was similar to, you know, March 9th of uh, 2009, right? If you, if you put money into the market on the 10th and walked away, you would have done extraordinarily well. <laughs> but investing isn't, you know, there are some folks who are market timing uh, investors. We really are focusing on you know, fundamentals of businesses that have that long-lasting, sustainable competitive advantage. And what is clear is that the pandemic has accelerated and highlighted trends that will make for different winners and losers in the market going forward. So on a long-term basis, I think it has really changed the nature of how companies will compete effectively and be successful. And you see that, for example, in healthcare, in the digital delivery and acceleration of digital healthcare. So, Barry, we talked about our investment in Talkspace, which is a digital behavioral health company. That business, in many ways, is now the future of behavioral healthcare. Whereas pre-pandemic, it was an important vehicle, but not, but it wasn't as clear that it will ultimately be a winner as it is today. And so, I think it's really the the pandemic. I think forces value investors and individual stock pickers to reassess the strategic positioning for many companies. And that's what I think the long-term consequence is going to be of the pandemic. So so let's talk about a specific company. Hudson took a 3.14% stake in German banking giant Deutsche Bank back in uh, October 2018. Tell us a little bit about what attracted you to Deutsche Bank. They've had a recent history of some regulatory problems going back to LIBOR and a whole run of things. What what makes them an attractive investment here? So Deutsche Bank is, is a really interesting um, investment. And when we made the investment back in 2018, you know, we were clearly quite the contrarian investor. But, 
you know, with the benefit now of two years of execution in hindsight, I think uh, the management continues, the new management continues to take this company in the direction we think is going to create lots of value for uh, shareholders today. What was compelling about Deutsche Bank is it is, you know, the largest bank in one of the world's largest economies um, and, and obviously one of the most important economies in Europe with a number of businesses that, if executed properly, were leaders in their, in their space. And the bank was troubled by a variety of uh, shortcomings and mistakes of prior managements, um, uh, a lack of uh, cultural uh, focus, a lack of investment, and leadership, and ultimately trying to compete head-to-head on all fronts with companies like J.P. Morgan when that wasn't really their strategic uh, direction. And so um, I invested um, after uh, Christian Sieving was named the new chief executive officer. We were actively involved uh, with the company in helping them think through their strategic repositioning, um, and we have been working actively with the company for the last several years as they have both rolled out that repositioning and now um, executed on it. And what Deutsche Bank um, really focuses in on from an investor standpoint is in a world in which the macro environment is very challenging for banks much of the operating performance improvement of Deutsche Bank is driven by self-help. And we believe that uh, Christian and his management team, who have now successfully executed on their plan for close to two years, is really on a path to returning this company to both uh, substantial profitability and um, generating a lot of excess capital that can ultimately be returned to the shareholders. So that's, for us, um, in an environment that's otherwise challenging for large banks, given the interest rate environment we live in today, much of this opportunity set is driven by uh, self-help for Deutsche Bank. Meaning management... Uh, knows what they need to do to to get the bank on the right path. You are clearly not the only one who sees Deutsche Bank this way. Capital Group just took a 3% stake. There are rumors of other people kicking around, taking a chunk. Do do you like to be early, or do do you not think in those terms of um, having to be the first one to turn over the rock and and see all the critters uh, underneath? Yeah, well, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, you you realize that when the rock is uh, turned over, there are lots of critters. This one, the critters had already been released. Um, The question was whether or not the management was up to the task. And that's where the, the work that I talked about that we do on the front end leads us to, you know, make investments based on the confidence of that deep due diligence and domain knowledge and expertise. So we don't 
we don't want to be we don't need to be the earliest we don't need to be the first what we don't know is whether we'll pick the bottom but because we're long-term investors Barry we're we know when we're investing we're not picking the top and that to us is the important part so you know this this is a big complicated global institution that had to go through a fundamental change uh, in leadership, in management, in culture, and in strategic positioning. And that takes time. Uh, but if you're a patient and you've made the right bets in you know, the early parts of an investment, it ends up being uh, you know, a very rewarding experience. So, so let me stay with your expertise at giant money center banks. Uh, clearly, J.P. Morgan Chase is a SIFI, is a um, systemically important financial institution. I have to imagine that in Germany, they're perceived as their version of SIFI or a national champion or whatever you want to call the hometown giant money center bank. Um, what is going to happen across the globe with, with these sorts of banks? Are, are we going to continue to see consolidation? I, I, we, I look in France at Societe Generale and BNP. I look in, at Switzerland at Credit Suisse and UBS. Are, are we just going to end up with a handful of giant banks in each and every country? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Barry. And I, I want to step back and say one of the real you know, if there are benefits that came out of the global financial crisis is the the standards that were put in place, whether it was, you know, the Fed stress tests and capital requirements, the Basel III requirements, all of these designations uh, that you mentioned, you know, systemically important financial institutions, means that today those large banks start from a position of relative strength, both in terms of their capital and liquidity. So the good news today is the, in, the, in the course of what has been a very challenging uh, economic environment in the pandemic, the banking system is far stronger, far more resilient um, than it was a decade ago. Having said that, there is no question that there remains what I would characterize as excess capacity or suboptimal returns um, that could certainly be enhanced through mergers. And so, you know, my expectation, I think others' expectation is, is that there will be another round of consolidation um, and that may very well, uh, you know, it may take some time to get there, but there is no question that for a number of these large banks, gaining more scale, creating more efficiencies will ultimately over time both, you know, improve returns for the investors and actually build capital uh, from a regulatory standpoint to keep these banks safer. So, yes. So I'm not sure so we'll last, see it today, but we will see it. Huh, interesting. So, so that makes me think of two specific things. We'll we'll go backwards and and currently, um, currently there's a ton of consolidation going on 
On the asset management side, we have Schwab taking over TD, uh, Morgan Stanley doing a few acquisitions, Franklin Resources and Invesco. Uh, what are your thoughts on that side of the finance sector? Are, are the same forces driving consolidation on the asset management half? Berry is, is unique and different. And I think the forces that are driving consolidation in the asset management side is really the prevalence and the amount of capital that has gone to passive um, investing with far lower cost structure. And so the traditional asset management model of active management and fees associated with active management has been squeezed. And when profits and margins are squeezed, one of the things that a company can do is look to improve that profitability or margin by merging and taking out excess costs. So what you see happening in asset management is that's a different driving force than what we talked about for the global financial institutions. By the way, you know, if you think about the investments that I make in some of these small um, or mid-sized businesses, they all they're they're targets of larger companies because there is a driving force that benefits through scale. So we've owned a number of medical device companies, great product but it costs an enormous amount of money to run a sales and marketing organization globally. And large medical device companies have those sales and marketing organizations in place. So they're able to take a great product and put it into their channel and distribute it. So, you know, and what I will say is asset management is no different than large financial institutions is no different than medical device, which is, these businesses over time are increasingly global and the benefits of scale matter. And quite frankly, if you, you know, you want to take the paradigmatic example of the benefits of scale, you know, my old employer, JP Morgan is, is the perfect example of that. They are, you know, they're a dominant player in the space in part because of the scale. It makes a lot of sense. Since you were at J.P. Morgan uh, during the crisis, and we talked about Washington Mutual, we talked about Bear Stearns, uh, I feel like I would not be completing the whole set of collectibles if I didn't ask you about either Lehman Brothers or AIG. Tell us a little bit about what you might have seen late 09 when everything was uh, on fire. Did you guys look at either of those companies, and, and what was your takeaway? Yeah, so I think because J.P. Morgan was, you know, a bank, if you will, to so many other banks, um, we had, you know, the either the, the benefit or or the challenge of being, you know, having a, a front row seat to almost every large financial institution and how they went through the financial crisis. Um, we actually were called to. To, to evaluate Lehman, and that was a you know a short discussion. It really didn't fit uh, what we were doing strategically. AIG, on the other hand, actually called 
us to help them try and find a solution. And, you know, it was one of those examples uh, during the financial crisis. I was actually, you know, happily on my way to work one morning, and I got a call from Jamie, and he asked me to reroute downtown to AIG's offices. And, you know, we spent uh, quite a few weeks working with the management team and the board to try and find a private market solution Ultimately, we weren't able to do that, and the government, as you know, had to step in. But, you know, we were, we were both looking at businesses as a potential acquirer, and we were actively engaged um, with businesses as an advisor to try and help them manage through the crisis. Huh. See, I, I see AIG um, as having some real value outside of their financial products division that blew up. The question with Lehman Brothers always seemed to be that everybody who, to, to use my private, to use my previous metaphor, everybody who flipped over that rock said, oh, these, this is just a disaster. We can't get involved in this. And it sort of looked like the Fed had the same uh, attitude. They were comfortable in letting them, you know, do the full face plant into the pavement. What, what was your perspective on Lehman? Yeah, you know, to be fair, I was busy. Lehman and and AIG, kind of those bombs went off at about the same time. Yep. So so, uh, it was quite an interesting uh, period of time because there was a group down at the Fed trying to – find a solution for Lehman, and and many of those individuals weren't aware um, that, you know, literally a block or so away, there was another, you know, quite frankly, larger financial institution that was also in, you know, massive distress. Um, I, I think, you know, in hindsight, um, the markets, the, the Lehman bankruptcy, um, obviously sent the markets into a, a material tailspin, which accelerated the issues at AIG and a number of other companies. Sure. Um, and, it, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve decided to, and the Treasury decided to step in an AIG to try and put the finger in the dike. It ended up being very important um, and ultimately uh, you know, financially, uh, uh, not necessarily successful, but at least financially uh, neutral to the government. Um, but, you know, part of the lesson, Barry, in all of this is, you know, financial institutions run, it's, financial institutions are a little bit like marathoners, right? They're in, you know, the, they're in great shape, and that shape is their capital base, right? How, how, how prepared are they to weather a crisis? But they also need liquidity. And matching the duration of your assets and liabilities is critically important. And for a marathon runner, it's the oxygen they take in, in the race. And, you know, you could be in the best shape of your life, but someone puts a pillow over your head at night and you can't breathe, it's not going to end well. And for many of these financial institutions, they, they believed capital was sufficient, and in the end, you need both capital and liquidity. And, you know, they, the system 
starved them of the oxygen they needed at the time they needed it most. Yeah, that makes sense. The the, the world looks differently um, at mile one than it does at mile 26. And 26, for banks, yes. right? It, the world looks yes. differently during normal times than it does in a liquidity crisis. Exactly. And if you aren't prepared for both, you know, you're not going to be successful in the race. And I get back to, you know, the 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 remarkable position and seat we all sat in at J.P. Morgan is, you know, we had both the capital and the liquidity to manage through this. And, you know, the the our ability to try and help the system through the financial crisis was, you know, for me, you know, one of the the parts of my career I'm most proud of. Huh, quite quite interesting. I know I only have you for a, a limited amount of time. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us what you're streaming these days. What are you doing to keep yourself entertained with either Netflix or podcasts? What do you, what do you, um, what's entertaining you? <laughs> what's entertaining me? So, um, I am, uh, I will tell you, to be fair, I am happiest, happiest at work. And I will tell you that I spend the vast preponderance of my time uh, looking for SPAC candidates and investment opportunities. Now, having said that, when I do have a moment, um, I, I love the Queen's Gambit and my my children would be very upset if I didn't also say that I, I, I kind of have a hankering for the great British baking show. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I do watch in moments of relaxation, you know, and on the, on the podcast side, Barry, I, you know, I, I love your show. Um, I am a sucker for Michael Semblist's eye on the market from JP Morgan. I think he just, mm-hmm. he has a, really innovative approach to uh, to big global questions. So when I do have a moment here or there, that's what I try to listen to. Huh. Good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your mentors. And, and dear Lord, that's quite a list you've already mentioned already. Tell us who helped to shape your career. Yeah. So um, I, I'm a big believer, by the way, uh, the for young people, the importance of mentorship, uh, I think, but for the mentors I had, you know, my career and life would have been really different. I actually go back to college. I had an extraordinary professor in college, a guy by the name of Sam Bacharach, who really changed the trajectory of my uh, academic and, uh, development. I worked for him for a number of years in research, and it, it was just, it was great training. Um, and then when I, you know, went to First Boston, I had the privilege of actually working for both uh, Bruce Wasserstein and Joe Perella, uh, my longtime boss uh, at, who ran the M&A group, Mike Koenigke. I think all three of them gave me great advice. And more importantly, they kind of put me in positions where, uh, you know, I had to swim on my own. And uh, every once in a while, they would, you know, give you a, a nudge one way or the other, but they just gave me great opportunities uh, to develop as a professional. 
And obviously, I've talked a little bit at J.P. Morgan about, you know, the extraordinary experience of working with Jamie. But, you know, I started my career working for Bill Harrison, and, you know, I think he had an enormous influence uh, on on my development professionally. So Let, I've, had a, I've had a string of great folks to work for. Uh, yeah, that's that's an amazing, an amazing list. Let's talk a little bit about books. What are you reading currently? And what are some of your favorites? Yeah, so right now, actually, I, I, I haven't read a book in the last couple of months. It's just been really busy. I would say on the favorites front, um, probably my all-time favorite book is um, Team Arrivals by uh, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I, I, I love the story behind Lincoln building out the cabinet. It's just an it's extraordinary lessons in leadership. I have to give a shout out to um, Andrew Sorkin for Too Big to Fail. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the global financial crisis and having had a front seat to most of it. I think Andrew did a remarkable uh, job with that. And then I am kind of a sucker for, you know, a bunch of Michael Lewis books. I love I, I love Moneyball, for example, and uh, uh, I try to read uh, periodically books that uh, my children are uh, are are reading, so we can have some interesting discussions. So, you know, I probably have to give a shout out to Lord of the Rings. That's one of those. <laughs> so that's a that's a good list, and you could add to your. Uh... Uh, list. I believe Michael Lewis's book on the pandemic comes out in May or June of this year. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm, exci- I'm excited to read it. I, I have, to be fair, I have a pile of books sitting next to my bedside that I haven't cracked in, in about four or five months. I, 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 there's lots of uh, a downside, but the, the ability to be active and efficient uh, remotely has really changed the workday in a way yeah, that no, no doubt. doesn't let me get to very many books these days. Right. The, there was a study out not too long ago that showed that the average uh, white-collar professional is working something like two hours more a week or a day. I don't remember what it was, but it was a big uptick in time when when you don't have to commute, shower, get dressed, you just roll out of bed and you're at your desk. It's a whole different uh, experience. It is a different experience. I, 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 you know, and, and the other pieces, the typical boundaries between, you know, work and home get eroded. Yeah. So yeah, uh, no complaints, though, because it's, you know, obviously a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career in either uh, M&A, finance, underwriting, what, what would your career advice be to them? So, so I would, uh, you know, obviously at J.P. Morgan, we literally recruited hundreds of uh, college grads and graduate school students every year. You know, what I would say, first of all, I think uh, the training and experience uh, that you get in any of these large uh, programs I think is extraordinary. And, and, and I think that is true of, you know, many, many of the large companies um, in, 
both in finance, in healthcare, in technology. I I really encourage young people to spend a couple of years in one of these well-run companies to to learn the processes that make these companies successful um, and to be around uh, senior talent that they can train and develop behind. But then ultimately, I, I think you to be successful, you have to do things that you're passionate about. Um, you know, work is hard and you want to do something that's not only hard, but what you enjoy doing. So really, you know, spend the time figuring out what makes you happy because that that allows you to put your very best foot forward. And then the last thing I I encourage people to do is look to go to organizations that reward performance. Um, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, young people work hard, put their head down, do do as good a job at the things they're asked to do. And but you, the the reciprocal requirement is that, you know, the companies they work for recognize that and, you know, promote um, and compensate them for that performance. So. And that's not true across the board. And, you know, you want to be in an environment that, you know, rewards that strong performance. And, and our final question, what do you know about the world of investing, mergers, M&A today that you wish you knew 30 years ago or so when you were first getting started? Oh, uh, well, I'll, on the, on the uh, investing front, um, I'm going to go back to the duration of your capital can be a remarkable competitive advantage. And and the reason I say that is, you know, what I've learned over the last 30 years is it often takes time to build a successful company. It's hard to really manage these businesses and build them and grow them and, you know, create competitive advantage. And capital needs to be long in duration in order to, to see that life cycle through. Um, and so for me, it's, it's all about matching the asset and liability duration. And in this particular instance, you know, you're investing in companies as the asset and you want to have capital um, that's long a duration to, to match the life cycle of that investment. Thanks, Doug, for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Doug Broadstein. He is the founder and managing partner at Hudson Executive Capital, which runs about $1.6 billion in assets. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the other previous 372 such discussions we've had over the past seven or so years. You can find that at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you feed your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Please give us a review at Apple iTunes. You can sign up for our daily reads. You'll find that at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at bloomberg.com opinion. Follow me on Twitter at 
at Ritholtz, I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Reggie Brazil is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>